You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. December 7th, 1941, the date of the attack on Pearl Harbor, is a date which lives in infamy, as President Roosevelt said. But it's hardly the only such infamous date. Now, September 11th, 2001, makes us think of terrorism. And November 9th, 1938, was the Kristallnacht, the night of terror waged against Jews in Nazi Germany. And there are many such evil days in world history. But today we're going to talk about the darkest day in history, the day when Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was betrayed and killed. The day which in Luke 22, Jesus himself calls the time belonging to the power of darkness, uh, the time when it most seemed that evil reigned and that God was defeated. And this morning, we're going to discuss events that took place early on that dark day as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. As we look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 56, and see the betrayal and arrest of Jesus and the failure and scattering of his disciples. But while today we're going to see some very tragic things, nevertheless, we're going to learn through them that actually God is still on his throne that the betrayal and death of Jesus were part of God's eternal plan, that actually Jesus is in control over everything that's going to happen to him. And ultimately, his cross proves not to be God's defeat, but rather God's glorious victory in Christ. And we're going to see these ideas today as we consider three points. First, Jesus works all things out for his people's ultimate good. Second, Jesus wrestles with his destiny and prevails by submitting his human will to the divine will. And third, we're going to see that Jesus' followers must live lives of constant vigilance and obedience. Oh, we begin with our first point. Jesus works all things out for his followers' ultimate good. It's the last day of Jesus' earthly life, and last week we saw how that day began. Because in the Jewish calendar, days begin in the evening. And so Jesus' final day begins with a supper, his last supper, which was the heavily symbolic Passover dinner that he ate with his disciples in the upper room. And during this meal, two significant things occurred. First, Jesus revealed that one of his disciples was going to betray him. And we saw last time that that traitor was Judas Iscariot. And we saw that Jesus knew that Judas had agreed to betray him, and Jesus told Judas that he knew. And Jesus then dismissed Judas from the dinner, according to John's gospel, telling him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And with that, Judas scurried off. But second, Jesus repurposed parts of the traditional Passover meal to create a new symbolic feast for his disciples, the Lord's Supper as he broke the bread and passed the cup, explaining that they now represent his body, which was about to be broken, and his blood, which was about to be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
And Jesus commanded his disciples to observe the Lord's Supper with regularity until the day when he returns to end history as a way to remember his death. But now that Passover meal has ended, and it's here we pick up now in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, traditionally, at the end of the Passover meal, Psalms 115 through 118 were sung, which include these words. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. All these words anticipate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And after singing them, Jesus led his disciples out of Jerusalem and back to the Mount of Olives. Not to the town of Bethany, where they had been staying during the week, which was on the Mount of Olives. No, Jesus leads them now to a different location on the Mount, to Gethsemane. And at this point, Jesus makes yet another startling statement to his disciples. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Earlier, Jesus astonished the disciples by announcing that one of them was going to betray him. Now he reveals that all of them are going to fail him in a catastrophic way. Uh, this Greek verb translated fall away has been used before in this book. In chapter 13, verse 57, we read that after Jesus taught in Nazareth, they took offense at him. It's the same verb, speaking of unbelief. Or chapter 24, verse 10, Jesus predicts widespread apostasy through the church age by saying that many will fall away. Again, it's the same verb. And now Jesus uses this verb, which speaks of massive sin, unbelief, and apostasy, to speak of his closest friends, saying all of them are going to commit a catastrophic act of unbelieving disloyalty, and that this was going to happen imminently, this very night, he says, that is, in the next few hours. But Jesus doesn't simply say that this will happen. He explains why it must happen because it was foretold in prophecy. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now in this prophecy, God speaks of striking his shepherd, the man who stands next to me. Now that's a reference to Jesus. And God says when this happens, the shepherd's sheep will scatter. And while this will prove disastrous for a majority of Israel, and we've seen how that will play out in Jesus' prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem, 
it will produce a different result for a small group, for a faithful remnant who will, as a result of this, be refined, who will draw near to God. And so what initially is a calamity becomes a means by which God brings about good for those who truly belong to him. And Jesus says, this prophecy must be fulfilled. He must be stricken by God, who is the one that says, I will strike the shepherd. And the result must be that the disciples scatter. But while the disciples will fail and desert Jesus, that isn't how their story ends. Verse 32, Jesus says of our passage, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Here's a promise of grace and restoration. As Jesus says that he is going to be raised up. He's mentioned this before. In chapter 16, Jesus first openly prophesied his death, and yet he said that on the third day he would be raised. Again, in chapter 17 and in chapter 20, Jesus repeated this prophecy three more times. He's very clear that his death will not be the end of his story. Because Jesus will enjoy victory over death, victory over his enemies. Jesus is going to prevail over the grave. And now Jesus says after that happens, after he rises, he will go before the disciples to Galilee. Even though the disciples are going to fail Jesus, he won't reject them. No, after the resurrection, he will be reunited with them back in Galilee where his ministry began. And then there's going to be a new beginning after Jesus graciously restores his disciples. So yes, some terrible things are about to happen, but evil will not have the last word. Jesus will prevail. And yet, the disciples don't understand this at all. They don't understand that Jesus is going to rise from the dead because they haven't yet come to grips with the fact that he's going to die. In fact, they're still hung up back on the very first thing Jesus said to them in this section, that they're all going to fall away. And the disciples are offended by this statement and deny it. Now, a few hours earlier when Jesus said one of them was a traitor, they responded differently. Matthew 26, 22 says that they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? See, the disciples then were aware of their weaknesses and doubted themselves. Each was worried that somehow he would prove to be the traitor. But now that self-awareness has given way to overconfidence. And this is seen most clearly in Peter. Look at Matthew 26, 33. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Wow, Peter's sure of himself, isn't he? He's so sure that, in fact, he imagines he has a more correct estimate of himself than Jesus does. He's forgotten who he's speaking with, and he arrogantly tries to correct Jesus, just like he did back in chapter 16, when he first rejected the idea that Jesus must go to the cross. But just like then, now Jesus publicly rebukes Peter for this arrogance by demonstrating how thoroughly he understands Peter Peter's faith, and the future of Peter's life. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Friends, that's not a guess. That's knowledge. 
Jesus knows that Peter will deny him three times before dawn because he is omniscient. Jesus knows all, but Peter won't believe it. Just as the other disciples cannot believe that they will fall away. And so we read in verse 35 that Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. But Jesus doesn't bother disputing their claim. Because the next hours will prove that his prophecy is true and that their protestations are false. Now, what should we take from this first point? Jesus knows the future. And he doesn't just know the big events that characterize history's turning points. He knows his disciples' personal futures in detail. He knows how many times Peter's going to deny him and when it's going to take place. Because Jesus has total knowledge about the future. And friends, that means that Jesus likewise knows every aspect of our futures. And that's a comforting thought. Because often in life we encounter terrible things we don't expect. The unexpected loss of a loved one. The unexpected loss of a job, an unexpected illness or financial trial. And these things can catch us off guard. They can devastate us. And yet it's important that as God's people, we remember that what we did not see coming, God did. He knows what we don't. And more than that, He holds the future. He is in control over the course of our lives. James 4.14 says, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See, God holds our futures. And God is doing something with our futures. He is at work in our lives. And many of us know Romans 8.28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. God works all things together for His people's good. But often when we quote that verse, we imagine that that is promising that everything's going to be smooth and easy and pleasant for us. But that's not what Romans 8.28 promises. Because we've got to ask, what is the good that God promises to bring about in our lives? And the next verse tells us, Romans 8.29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The good that God wants to bring about in our lives is He means to make us more like Jesus. He means to sanctify us. And sometimes that means we've got to go through painful and difficult refinement. Like what Zechariah 13 prophesied for the disciples. They were going to have to scatter. And through that experience, God would refine them and draw them close. Friends, we're all going to undergo terrible adversity in this life. But God is at work even in those times to accomplish His good purpose of making us more like Christ. But I want to point out one more thing here, which is that the adversity that the disciples undergo here is not simply the loss of a loved one or a job. The adversity they undergo is failure. It is grievous sin. For a short time, they are going to fall away from Christ. And Jesus knew that was coming even though they didn't. Just as he knows that every time you and I will fail. He's known about it from before the foundation of the world. And yet, if we know Christ, even though He knows our sins, past, present, and future, despite that, the Father still sent His Son into the world to die for us. He has still elected us and calls us, and He will work out His good purposes in our lives, in spite of our sins 
and sometimes even through our sins. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that our sins are good. We're about to see how awful they are. But Genesis 50 says, What people meant for evil, God meant for good. And believing friend, God can redeem even our worst sins to bring about some good. Maybe he will turn things around in our lives through discipline, bringing about our good through painful correction to make us more like Christ. Maybe he'll turn things around for us by somehow reversing the consequences of our sin, producing something surprisingly good out of it. Perhaps he'll turn things around in our lives by bringing us so very low that we will be driven to bear the fruit of repentance and obedience that he desires. But however he does it, friends, we need to know that ultimately the good and gracious purposes of God will stand for the believer so we can trust Jesus with our futures. But now we come to our second point. Jesus wrestles with his destiny and prevails by submitting his human will to the divine will. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now John 18 tells us that Jesus often met with his disciples at the garden of Gethsemane. So Matthew 26, 36 says that he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So at this point, what happens is Jesus leaves eight of the disciples in one part of the garden, and he takes three of them to a different area, Peter, James, and John. Now these three disciples seem to have been Jesus' closest friends. They were the inner circle of his inner circle. They were the only disciples who were allowed to go onto the Mount of Transfiguration and behold Jesus' divine glory. And now once more, he takes only these three friends with him. And as he does, we're told that Jesus begins to experience intense personal stress and sorrow. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus tells his friends, he is undergoing this intense spiritual crisis. He is feeling a sorrow that is so profound, it seems like it could kill. He is really feeling the weight of what is about to take place. And so he tells his friends to stay nearby as he goes on ahead to pray by himself. And I think there's a lesson here for us, which is that if even Jesus, in this moment of personal crisis and testing, believed it was prudent to take his friends into his confidence and have them nearby, then in moments of great personal adversity and spiritual crisis, it's good for us to have close, believing friends upon whom we can rely. Now, I know in America we often value rugged individualism, and I've known Christians who thought that there was virtue in being hyper-private about their trials and difficulties. But friends, God has given us fellow believers, and the community of the local church for a reason. Because life often has moments when it's best to have people near us. Do you have people like that? Friends, that's what the church is for. Make some friends and, and bring them into your confidence so that when you go through adversity like this, you have people on whom you can rely. 
Because we see even here that the Lord Jesus wants his friends nearby as he faces this moment. But notice what he tells them. They aren't simply to stand around as moral support. He gives them an important task as Jesus tells them, watch with me. What's he mean? Well, Jesus has used this verb before when he commanded his followers to always be ready for his return. Chapter 24, verse 42, he says, Therefore, stay awake, same verb, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The idea is to be prepared, to be ready. And so Jesus tells his friends to stay nearby and adopt a posture of readiness. But what are they to be ready for? Well, Jesus doesn't say, but he's already told them what's coming. Because five times now in this book, he said something like this. Matthew 20, verse 18. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But Jesus has been clear that the religious leaders of Israel who hate him are going to take him into custody and have him killed. And more than that, Jesus said, Jesus said just a few days earlier, Matthew 26, 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus told them that his death is going to happen on Passover, on this very same day. In fact, just an hour or so earlier, Jesus told the disciples that his body was about to be broken and his blood poured out. And just a few minutes earlier, he told the disciples that they were about to terribly fail him. So the disciples had plenty of reason to stay alert on this occasion and be ready for what Jesus has said is going to happen. And yet, as we've seen throughout this book, the disciples still don't get it. They don't perceive that what Jesus has said about these things is going to come literally true. They don't think anything important is going to happen on this night. But Jesus knows that it will. And so now he does what we should do when we face the great spiritual trials of our lives. He prays. Look at verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And Jesus adopts this posture of incredible humility. Even though he is truly God, Equal in deity to the Father. He falls on his face before the Father in functional subordination to him. And he pleads that the cup might pass from him. What's he mean? Well, he's not talking about a literal cup. Now, Jesus has used this language before, back in chapter 20. When James and John asked him if they might sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? See, the cup is a reference to the suffering that Jesus must endure. And now Jesus asks his father if this cup of suffering is truly necessary. Is there no other way to accomplish the divine plan? Now, this might surprise us. Because we've seen in this book that Jesus clearly understands his destiny. Because not only has Jesus explicitly prophesied his death five different times, but he has explained its significance in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
But Jesus has known all along that his death is the plan of God. Because this is how the angel's words in chapter 1 would be fulfilled. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But now Jesus is face to face with his destiny. Now it's imminent. And while in his deity he is in perfect unity with the will of the Father and of the Spirit, in his humanity he now feels the magnitude and urgency of what lies before him in a way that he has not before. But what is it about his destiny that gives him pause? Well, certainly Jesus has prophesied that he is about to endure the most horrific violence. He's spoken of being mocked, flogged, and crucified. And certainly, mocking is unpleasant. But Jesus has been ridiculed before and didn't flinch at it. A Roman flogging was a brutal thing. And everyone in the ancient world would have known about the horrors of crucifixion. Because they would have witnessed it regularly as they traveled because the Romans liked to put their victims' crosses along important roads. But I don't think that what was giving Jesus pause here was simply the physical suffering that he would endure, because he's known that these things were before him all along, and that has not deterred him up to this point. No, I think that what leads to this supreme spiritual trial are the aspects of the cross that remained invisible to human eyes. Because Jesus' death is not an ordinary death. Jesus has explained that he dies as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. His death is different. The Apostle Paul said, says this uh, to explain the cross in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. His best friends, Peter and John, testified that in him there is no sin in 1 John 3, 5. 1 Peter 2 says he committed no sin. And yet, on the cross, in some way we cannot understand, the sinless one became sin. And for this one who is holy, 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 this must have been the most abhorrent thing. You know, we're, we're all fallen humans who are accustomed to sin to varying degrees. So we don't see sin as it really is in all of its true horror. But sin's false allure did not cloud Jesus' mind one whit. He saw sin as it really is. And, and now he's going to have to bear it in such a way that Paul says he would become sin. To him, this must have been the horror of horrors. And yet that wasn't all because Jesus wasn't simply destined to bear our sin. He was destined to bear the wrath of the Father for that sin. The wrath that Jesus has warned against so intensely in this book as he has warned about the horrors of hell. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was cursed for us. And he who alone perfectly understood the awful dimensions of that wrath grew very stressed 
as he pondered enduring it. Friends, I don't think we can understand the gravity of what Jesus felt in that moment. Luke 22 says that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, Luke doesn't say that Jesus' sweat literally became blood, but that the intensity of Jesus' travail in this was such that the beads of his sweat became large and dense like blood drops as he wrestled in prayer about his destiny. Mark tells us Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. My friends, that's a great thing for us to pray when we are faced with the darkest moments of our lives, when it feels like adversity is insurmountable to us. To remember that with God, all things are possible. To ask if some alternative can take place to the suffering that we're experiencing. And yet, sometimes God's will is fixed, and Jesus here asks whether the suffering that is before him can be avoided or whether it is part of God's unalterable decree. As he says in Matthew 26, 39, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus' humanity is stressed by the awfulness of what lies before him, and yet in all this, he remains without sin. He does not rebel against the Father's will. Instead, his petition is for the Father's will to be done. He submits to the Father. And here we see the moral glory of Jesus. Because in this moment of terrible stress, Jesus now embodies his own teaching from this book. Because earlier he has taught his disciples to pray to the Father in Matthew 6, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now Jesus puts that very petition to practice in this moment of extreme testing. And with that, he concludes his first prayer. Verse 40, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. While Jesus has been laboring in prayer, his closest friends whom he had brought with him for this moment, whom he had ordered to remain alert, have fallen asleep. So Jesus wakes them up and he gently rebukes them. Verse 40, And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus knew that in one sense, Peter, James, and John desired to obey him. Their spirits were willing to keep alert that night. And yet there is a large gap between the desire to obey and actual obedience. And while they may have wanted to obey... The disciples were unable to master their own physical weaknesses and susceptibilities. Sleep overpowered their weak bodies. And in that dark, quiet place late at night, it was easy to doze off. And so Jesus now gives them a charge that ought to help keep them awake. As he tells them once more to watch, and now he adds that they should pray to not enter temptation. Notice that even in the midst of his own most extreme personal trial, Jesus still loved his disciples and he was thinking about how to care for them. And so once more, Jesus embodies his own instruction as he urges the disciples to pray as he had once taught them. Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. And Jesus knows they need to pray that prayer because they are about to face an enormous spiritual crisis that they will fail. And so what they need to do is pray in the face of their trial. And modeling this proper response, Jesus now goes away again to pray some more about his crisis. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In his first prayer, Jesus sought to know if there were alternative possibilities to the cross. But now he seems to understand that the cup cannot pass from him. There is no alternative. The cross is the only way. And even though he understood the horrors of the cross in a way that we cannot, he accepts the Father's will and again submits to it. And then Jesus arose and returned to his friends. Verse 43, And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And the disciples are totally overpowered by their bodies craving for sleep. And this time Jesus kindly lets them continue resting. Verse 44, So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time saying the same words again. Once more, Jesus brings his crisis before the Father and entrusts the situation to his will. And having prayed this third time, Jesus is now ready for what will happen. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now the moment has come. Jesus wakes the disciples up. They're out of time to rest. And they're out of time to prepare for what they are about to experience. Tragically, they have not kept watch. And they have not prayed and so, unlike Jesus, they are not ready to meet the trial that is now literally walking towards them. But Jesus is, and he boldly leads his friends towards those who have come to take him. He knows that his hour is at hand, and he will not shrink from it. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Earlier in the night, Jesus had sent Judas out of the upper room. And Judas apparently then went to the Sanhedrin, the supreme council over Judaism, who desired Jesus' death. The Sanhedrin had previously agreed to pay Judas to betray Jesus. And apparently Judas told them if they wanted to strike, they'd better move now because Jesus knew that he had turned traitor. And so they send this armed mob out to arrest Jesus, which seems to have consisted of the temple police and some Roman soldiers. Probably Judas led them first to the upper room, but finding it empty, he surmised where Jesus had taken the disciples. For John 18 says that Judas knew the place from the amount of time that, Je that Jesus had spent with his disciples there. And indeed, he meets Jesus now at Gethsemane. And now Judas will earn the 30 pieces of silver for which he will damn his soul. It was dark out. Many in the mob would not have known Jesus' face. 
Judas' presence was necessary to make the identification. Verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. But now that the mob arrives, John's gospel tells us that actually Jesus takes the initiative in this scene. That he stepped forward and identified himself with the words, I am, uttering the very name of God. And the result was that those in the mob were thrown down to the ground. But after this initial demonstration of power, Jesus allows the betrayal to occur. And Judas goes through with his plan. Verse 49. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Now once more we see Judas doing what unbelievers have done throughout this book. Calling Jesus simply Rabbi or Teacher rather than Lord. Once more, Judas shows himself to be outside the people of God. And beyond that, he insults Jesus. Because in that culture, in a master-disciple relationship, it would be for the master to initiate the greeting. But here Judas initiates the greeting, treating Jesus as his equal, showing that he claims Jesus as his master no longer. And he gives Jesus the infamous kiss. The betrayal is complete. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. He offers no resistance. In fact, even in these words, we still see Jesus' absolute command over this situation because what happens now takes place with Jesus' permission. Now, what should we take from this second point? Two things. First, Jesus shows us the way to face spiritual crisis is through prayer. Jesus faces a test beyond anything that you or I will ever face. He knows that the most horrific fate awaits him. His humanity experiences tremendous stress at the prospect. And yet he prays. He prays fervently for a way out of this difficult path. And yet most importantly, he shows us that ultimately prayer is an act in which we submit to the Father's will. And through this... Jesus is prepared for his destiny. Friends, adversity should cause us to seek God in prayer. But when we pray, we must avoid two errors. First, we must avoid the error of fatalism. There's a big difference between the prayer that Jesus offers here, thy will be done, and fatalism, which doesn't even try to seek an alternative to the hardship we encounter. Friends, we should pray in the midst of our trials. We should pray energetically. We should ask God to deliver us from adversity. But second, we must avoid the error of imagining that prayer is about bending God to our will. Ultimately, the right attitude for our prayers must be that we set our desires before the Father. But we accept that if in the end our desires are incompatible with God's will, then it is God's will which must be done. Because even down the dark and painful road of adversity, God's good purposes will be accomplished. So we need to pray. But second, we see in Jesus' anguish the full and true weight of the gospel that we may often forget. We see the horror of sin in these verses as Jesus, the one who must become sin, recoils from it. How often do we shrug at our own sins? How often do we reassure ourselves, nobody's perfect, or 
God won't really mind. And we miss the fact that our sin is the commission of high treason in God's universe. That Jesus understood sin rightly. And seeing it, he wasn't attracted by it. He didn't toy with it. He loathed it. More than that, we're reminded here of the awful price of our sin. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Now, what do we deserve for that? Well, the wages of sin is death. And not just physical death, but the full measure of God's wrath, which constitutes eternal death. And that's not a joke. You know, people in our society laugh about hell and talk about it like it's going to be some place to have a debauched party. Friends, Jesus came face to face with the wrath of the Father, and that prospect brought anguish to his soul and made him sweat like drops of blood. And that was Jesus. How much should wretched sinners like us fear to come face to face with the wrath of the Father? It is the most horrific reality imaginable. It is the tragedy of the ages. And friend, if you do not bend the knee to Christ and turn from your sin and trust in Him alone, you are on a collision course with that wrath forever. Salvation is available only by God's grace alone, through repentant faith alone, in Jesus, the God-man who died for our sins and rose again alone. But we also see in Christ's anguish the hope of the gospel. Because Jesus goes to the cross to take our place. Again, Isaiah 53 says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, that he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that upon him would be the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus bears our sin so that his people will carry its weight no longer. And he bears the penalty for our sin so that we might never experience how awful God's wrath truly is. Jesus goes to his death to give us life, to credit to our account his perfect righteousness, to free us from the penalty and power of sin. And in submitting to the Father's will, he, the second Adam, achieves what the first Adam failed to do. For in the garden, Adam failed by saying, not your will, but mine. But Jesus passed the test in the garden, saying, not my will, but yours. And friends, in so doing, he also shows us the truest measure of his love. For there is no greater love than what Jesus endured for us. And considering what he endured this morning, this should stir worship and gratitude in our hearts. Friend, do you love Jesus today? Are you in awe of what he went through for you? Or are you indifferent? If so, do you, do you even really know him? Have you even really come to faith in him? Because this is the most glorious and important truth that there is, that Jesus endured the cross to rescue and spare you from facing God's wrath. And as a result, we owe Jesus our highest gratitude, love, and obedience. But we come now to our final point, which is that Jesus' followers must live lives of constant vigilance and obedience. Look at verse 50. 
Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Jesus' prophecy has come true. He has indeed been betrayed into the hands of sinners. And at this point, one of the disciples decides, it's time to take matters into his own hands. Verse 51, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John's Gospel tells us this zealous disciple was Peter, who had earlier sworn that he would be loyal to Jesus and, if necessary, would die with him. And now Peter tries to show that he meant what he said. And so he swings a sword with a murderous intent at the head of one member of this mob. Now, it was dark out, and clearly Peter was not a swordsman. And so he manages only to sever the ear of the unfortunate slave of the high priest. But Peter's impetuous act has risked making this tragic scene even worse. It's bad enough that Jesus is arrested, but Peter now risks the massacre of the disciples. And so at this point, even though he's under arrest, Jesus asserts himself, demonstrating his control over the situation, and he sets things right. Luke tells us that Jesus healed the slave's ear, and then Jesus rebuked Peter. Matthew 26, 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Peter fails here in two ways. First, he fails because he does not obey Jesus' command about how to respond to one's persecutors. Matthew 5.39, Jesus says, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now earlier, Jesus had embodied his instruction about prayer. And at this point now, Jesus embodies this same instruction about not retaliating against an aggressor. Jesus doesn't order his disciples to strike back. He doesn't utilize his divine power to obliterate his foes. He doesn't do what Satan tempted him to do in chapter 4, summoning angels to protect himself. Jesus doesn't resist. In fact, Jesus blesses his enemies by doing good to them, by healing the wounded slave. But in contrast, Peter returns evil for evil. And so he disobeys Jesus' teaching. He becomes a man of violence, and now Jesus warns him that that path ends on the point of somebody else's sword. Because as God said in Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Jesus does not accept violent action undertaken in his name. But second, Peter fails here because he doesn't accept Jesus' instruction that it must be so. God's kingdom does not come through insurrection or combat. No, the scriptures foretold that Jesus must be betrayed, arrested, and killed. That must come to pass. And so while Peter was ready to kill and be killed for Jesus, the problem is that the test that was actually put to him required a totally different response. And for that test, Peter was not ready because he had failed to keep alert. And he had failed to pray. And he had failed to listen, understand, and obey Jesus' words. Because the test put to Peter wasn't about being a man of violent action. 
No, it required him to instead stand by, submit to the Father's will, and not resist these evil actors. And for that, Peter was totally unprepared. But in contrast, Jesus maintains his integrity. And so as he is taken away, Jesus stands on the supreme moral high ground, and he exposes the utter injustice of what's being done to him. Verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And Jesus points out, this mob has come bearing weapons, like he was a robber. Well, this word often means something like an insurrectionist or a revolutionary, like the false messiahs of that day who were just looking for an excuse to murder Romans or steal money. But Jesus says, if that's really how you viewed me, why do you come to arrest me at night in secret? I mean, that whole week, Jesus had been making public appearances at the temple. If he was really this dangerous criminal, why not arrest him when he was appearing openly in public? Because the arrest of Jesus had nothing to do with administering justice. Because Jesus wasn't a dangerous criminal, he was only a threat to the Sanhedrin's power. And so the Sanhedrin wants to seize him in a way that won't threaten their power. If Jesus is arrested openly during the day, they feared that the crowds of pilgrims from Galilee might riot if they saw Jesus arrested. So they want Jesus arrested when nobody will be around to see it. And then they plan to murder him. And wicked acts like that are done at night to conceal them. And so by taking Jesus in this way at night, the Sanhedrin reveals its own hypocrisy and evil. But again, Jesus declares this must be so because it fulfills prophecy. For Isaiah 53 said he had to be numbered with the transgressors. But while Jesus maintains his integrity and trust in the Father, look how our passage ends. Verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. The eight who had been elsewhere in the garden ran away. They deserted Jesus in this moment. James and John, who previously boasted that they could drink the cup of suffering that Jesus would drink, showed that actually they were not able, and they cut and run too. And Peter, whose gesture of violence has been rejected by Jesus, will also fall away and deny him, just like Jesus prophesied. Indeed, they all fell away, just like Jesus said they would. For the Father was now in the process of striking the shepherd, and so his sheep scattered. But what should we take from this last point? Friends, as we go through this life, we will watch people who claim the name of Christ fail. Many will fall into terrible sin. And it's easy for us to shake our heads and scoff at their professions of faith and applaud ourselves for our supposed virtue. And indeed, to be sure, there are times when we need to be discerning and recognize that sometimes people's professions of faith are contradicted by their lifestyle. Sometimes we need to recognize that publicly. There is a time for Christians to judge one another. We're explicitly told to do so in the local church in 1 Corinthians 5 when occasions for corporate discipline arise so that we can maintain our witness before the watching world. But friends, such occasions are not opportunities for arrogant self-congratulation. 
And as we see the disciples' failure here, we need to be warned against being too sure of ourselves because that's what happened to them. They traded the healthy self-awareness they showed earlier in the evening for overconfidence. And the result was what? A belief that they didn't need to keep alert when Jesus warned them that they did? A failure to pray when Jesus told them to pray to avoid temptation? And ultimately they faced a trial they did not expect and they wilted. We may be very sure of ourselves, friends, but we would do well to remember 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We may imagine that we are prepared for any test, any temptation, any persecution, but we never really know how we're going to do with a trial until we encounter it. And friends, it is possible for us to fall. So we've got to remain humble. And we need to trust Jesus, who has commanded us to regularly pray that we would be kept from temptation, that we would be delivered from the schemes of the evil one. And we must be alert because we live in an evil time filled with sin, deception, and apostasy. Just as Paul told Timothy, we need to keep a close watch on ourselves and our doctrine because it is possible that we should fail and fail disastrously. And if that happens, friends, we need to repent because God is gracious and merciful. And we see that in our passage, right? If the disciples, if Peter can be forgiven and restored, there is great hope for every believer. But friends, it's better not to fail. And so we need to especially dedicate ourselves to studying God's word with an eye to preparedness. As Romans 12 puts it, we need to renew our minds that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to conform our thoughts to God's thoughts and make preparations to understand how we ought to act when various tests arise so that when we actually encounter them, we're ready to put into practice what we've learned. Or else, friends, we may be blindsided by catastrophe. This chapter shows us that in the end, humility and loyalty to God requires regular prayer to avoid temptation, constant watchfulness, and a mindset on God's word with an eye towards obedience. The disciples failed in these things with catastrophic results. But Jesus models them all. And so he pleases his father and accomplishes his will. So may we follow his example. But friends, to conclude, Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And in the same way, God means for us to learn obedience, to be conformed to Christ's likeness. And that means that we will encounter serious spiritual trials. But as we do so, may we fix our eyes upon Jesus and put into practice what we learn as we watch him here face this most immense trial. As he embodies his own teaching, strives in prayer, and submits to the Father's will. And by so doing, he won the victory. May we emulate him. And in the words of Hebrews 12, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand 
of the throne of God.